0: Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Lauren Bemke, a partner in SNC's M&A practice. With me today are my partners Davis Wang and Isaac Wheeler, who are the co-heads of SNC's tax group. Today, we are going to be discussing the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law on August 16, 2022, and a few of its key impacts on companies and corporate transactions. The Inflation Reduction Act introduced three key sets of changes that we'll be talking about today. First, the corporate minimum tax. Second, the 1% buyback tax. And third, a number of clean energy initiatives. Isaac, do you want to tell us a bit about the corporate minimum tax?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you, Lauren. So, the genesis of the corporate minimum tax is this perception that companies were reporting to shareholders significant financial statement income and a very low effective tax rate and for whatever reason that that's somehow bad or wrong. And the new minimum tax applies a 15% minimum tax on a company's book income as reported on their financial statements. Applicable financial statement income is the defined term. So I just want to highlight three points. The first is that it will be really interesting to see what the regulatory guidance looks like. And that's because in a lot of cases, the deviation of taxable income from book income is purposeful. So, for example, accelerated depreciation or bonus depreciation is something that Congress specifically enacted to encourage capital expenditures, but it does not have an analog in book income. So if you're depreciating assets under bonus, your book income is naturally going to be higher than your taxable income. But that's exactly what Congress wanted. Now there are exceptions that back out certain items from book income and and depreciation is one of them, but it will be really interesting to see where this goes in the regulations because the legislative exceptions are relatively limited and certain industries were successful in the legislative process in ensuring that these adjustments to book income that are specific to that industry were included. There's a lot that's left to the drafters of the regulations. The second point is that right now, the tax hits companies only if they have an average over the last three years of at least a billion of annual financial statement income. And so it's a relatively small subset of the economy that has to worry about the corporate minimum tax. And really, the focus of the tax politically was probably pharma and big tech. But when a new type of tax is introduced, and this is absolutely a new type of tax, it doesn't look like anything else in the code in terms of basing a tax on book income. When a new type of tax is introduced, the heavy legislative lift is about enacting it into law in the first place. And once it's in the code, it's a lot easier for Congress to adjust the thresholds So that it impacts a broader group of companies. So whereas the tax is relatively limited in terms of the number of companies that it catches today, that may not always be the case. And the third point that I want to make, which is really a subset of the first, is that one of the big discrepancies between financial statement income and taxable income results when a company for book purposes has to mark to market certain assets. And for tax purposes, the company cannot, it's not allowed to market those same assets. And so you get this, again, you get this natural book tax discrepancy that it's not like anybody is playing a game in order to achieve this result. This is just how each of the two systems work. This is something that is not adjusted for in the statute today. And so it remains to be seen whether we're going to get either a regulatory exception or future legislative change to account for this.
0: Interesting. Thanks, Isaac. I've also heard that there are impacts for a split-off transaction, which is a transaction in which one company is separated from another through a share exchange. Davis, can you tell us a bit about
2: that? Sure. Thank you, Lauren. The potential impact on split-offs is exactly because of the divergence between accounting and tax that Isaac already discussed. So our understanding is that for accounting purposes, sometimes when a company splits off a subsidiary, a gain is actually recorded, even though that is explicitly a tax-free transaction. So if there are no regulations clarifying this point, there may naturally be the question whether that gain that is recorded for accounting purposes would now be subject to the minimum tax. We're hopeful that the IRS will promulgate regulations to clarify this point, since again, split-offs are intended to be tax-free by statute and by long established practice.
0: Thanks, Davis. And Davis, can you also discuss the new 1% buyback tax that the law imposes as of January 1, 2023?
2: Sure, the buyback tax is imposed on publicly traded U.S. corporations, and it's a 1% tax on buybacks. However, it does have a lot of unintended consequences for normal, ordinary course transactions that Congress probably did not think of as buybacks, but could constitute as buybacks under the way buybacks are defined in the statute. Do you want me to get into some of that, Lauren?
0: Absolutely, that would be great.
2: So for example, in a SPAC transaction, there can be redemptions, as we know, before a SPAC, actually de SPACs with an operating company, that redemption is ordinarily treated as a buyback and that could then subject the company to the buyback tax. That is probably not within the original intent of Congress in trying to penalize buybacks as opposed to dividends because in fact, a spec is just a cash box. So it's unclear that this is ever intended to be covered. Second, financing for transactions could be caught because typically many transactions, uh, many cash acquisitions are effected by forming a merger sub that borrows money that then merges within into the target with the target surviving. The merger sub is ignored for tax purposes and for tax purposes, it is treated as if the target itself borrowed that amount of money and then redeemed its shares that redemption, again, could technically be caught by the redemption rules. And so one has to be careful in structuring financing for acquisitions to avoid this unintended 1% cost. Third, the statute as drafted applies not just to redemptions, but also to economically similar transactions. So there are a lot of questions about whether ordinary course capital markets transactions, such as convertible debt, preferred stock, would all be caught up in this buyback tax. And again, we're awaiting regulation from the IRS to clarify the ambit of this statute.
0: Kings Davis. You know, one other potential impact of the buyback tax that will be interesting to observe is how it may change the capital allocation theses of activist investors. Buybacks have traditionally been one of a favorite among activists to boost shareholder returns, and the excise tax cuts into the benefits there.
2: That's absolutely true. And that would change the calculus how effective that strategy will be.
0: Isaac, last but certainly not least, what should we take away from the clean energy initiatives in the act? Anything in particular we should know about there?
1: Yeah. So a lot of changes in the clean energy space and really positive for that industry. I think I saw something from a carbon capture coalition saying that basically the IRA had everything that was on their wish list which is kind of an amazing statement because people always have something to complain about usually. So there's a ton of changes that credits themselves, but I wanna focus on one wholesale change, which is that previously in order to claim tax credits, you had to be the owner of the property that produced the credit. And that created a friction economically, because the owners of the property, the developers of the renewable energy themselves, generally don't have the tax base to utilize the credit. And so they would have to bring in an owner, usually referred to as tax equity, that had the capacity to use the tax credits. And what the IRA does is it allows for credits to be transferred for cash. Now, from a policy perspective, that is a huge win. The economics of structuring a tax equity owner is just a natural friction to preventing at least some of the incentives that Congress is trying to provide in the production of clean energy. But it's still very early to see how the market is gonna digest this change. And that is for two reasons. The first is that being an owner also allows you to take tax depreciation. And it's not clear that the developers can use the the depreciation. And so transferring the credit without transferring the depreciation may not achieve the seamless efficiency that Congress is seeking to implement here. And the second thing is a lot of these credits are based on the price paid for the asset. And currently, the value of the credit itself is partially baked into the price. So that if a developer develops an asset and then sells it to a tax equity owner, the price is increased over cost, not just for the developer's profit margin, but there's also an acknowledgement that the credit has value to the buyer. And the fact that they're paying more for the asset means that the amount of the credit is greater. And so if you move to a model where the developer is claiming the credit based on its cost, and then selling that credit to a tax equity owner, somebody who can use the credit, the actual amount of the credit may be less Because the purchase price doesn't include one, the developer profit, and two, this embedded value of the credit. So it's still very early to see how the renewable energy market is going to digest this change, whether they're going to take advantage of this transferability of credits rule, or whether the existing model of tax equity owners acquiring assets from developers is going to remain. So, general overview. The bill is great for clean energy. It adds a lot of new credits and increases the value of existing credits, but this change is still being digested in the market.
0: Thanks, Isaac. So it sounds like overall the Inflation Reduction Act brought on a lot of changes that will impact companies and their transactions, but we'll have to see how all of these changes are digested in the market, and what future interpretive guidance comes out that might give us some clarity on these issues. Thank you for listening to SC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.cellcrom.com.